Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning on this uh, kind of unique weekend of the year. I'm not a huge fan. I get really anxious when the clock needs to be set forward an hour. I wake up like many times through the night freaking out that I'm going to oversleep or that I'm going to somehow just like sleep through church altogether. And so I'm glad to be here. Uh, It's good to see you. Our sermon title today is, I guess, provocative. Our weakness, sex, and the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5 It is God's word, and we need his help as we're going to look to it if we're going to do anything profitable in the next 45 minutes or so. So let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Father, we do come to you as we do every Lord's Day, and we come trusting you. We come in faith. We come looking to you and your righteousness, your perfection, your holiness, your grace, your mercy, and your love towards us. We pray that you would be all of those things, that you would be faithful to us, those of us whom you have called to yourself and who have been adopted into your family, not because of our merit or our strength or righteousness, but because of your grace and the righteousness of Christ counted to us. We pray that you would help us as we look to your word, as we consider who we are, fallen in Adam, as we consider our corruption and the things that we battle, every one of us in this room, and as we consider the gospel and the work of Christ in our place, we pray that you would strengthen and confirm our faith. We pray that you would be working in us by your spirit to root out sin and to conform us into the image of Christ. We can't do that for ourselves. Your spirit must do that work in us, and we pray that you would. Come now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, brothers and sisters, is not silent on what we are. God's word is not silent on our corruption in Adam. Our corruption has fallen human beings. The word of God is not silent on the things that lie deep within our hearts. The word of God is not silent on the deepest, most intimate, and perhaps darkest desires that we have. God's word divides those and exposes those and brings those to light. The church is perceived by many to be sheltered and naive, just in general. And that critique is sometimes legitimate, but it's not because of the Bible that the church is those things. And when it comes to human sexuality, the church is perceived as prudish often. We don't talk about sex in the church. It's taboo. And we're easily shocked by the realities of human sexuality. If that's the case, it's not because of the Bible. The Bible speaks to those things very directly. And the only reason that the church would be naive or sheltered or prudish in the way that we think about these matters is because we have not taken into consideration what God's word says on these things. We preach through books of the Bible here at CBC generally. I make these comments maybe three times a year just to remind us that we, as we make our way through books of the Bible, some good things happen in the life of our church. 
The first thing is that we allow God's word to set the agenda for CBC, not the pastor's ideas, because we deal with the text as it comes. But then also, it necessitates and requires that we preach the passages that we come to. We don't just kind of cherry pick. We don't go down the aisle and say, yeah, we'll take some of that and we'll take some of that, but we're going to skip over these things. We preach the entire counsel of God's word in that regard. And we find ourselves in Proverbs chapter 5 today. It is about adultery and sexual sin. This is sometimes hard for us to read. It is not the easiest text to preach. As I stand here today, like you, a sinner, an impure man striving after purity. This can be hard for us to sit under. But my aim in our time today in Proverbs 5 is to be honest about us, to be honest about sex in light of the text, and it's to be honest about our experiences as sinners in this fallen world and to be appropriate in doing that. I aim to be discerning, taking into regard the setting. I don't want to cause any problems, certainly, in any households represented. And then, as always, I want to point us to Christ, our Savior. It seems appropriate to me, before we dive into the reality of sexual sin, something that touches every human being, that we would remind ourselves from the outset that in Jesus Christ, by faith, there is real righteousness and real absolution, real forgiveness of real sin. Not because of anything that we have done, but completely because of the work of Christ for us. That is good news. And when we come to any passage, in particular one, that is going to expose the darkness of our hearts, it's important that we approach it in Christ Jesus, covered in his blood, knowing that we have been, in fact, forgiven and cleansed and made righteous in him. Now, with all that being said, let's look to the passage, Proverbs 5. Let me read for us now God's word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your ears, yours, excuse me, to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, and when your flesh and body are consumed, you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. 
the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Well, thanks be to God for his word today and every day. I want to consider the text with you in four points under four headings. And before I do that, it's good to note that Solomon here is communicating to his proverbial son, but it is entirely right and appropriate to understand this passage to apply to men and women. This is not just a passage aimed at the men in the room. It is aimed at both men and women, and we will look at it accordingly. This is a two-way street as we consider this text together. So point number one from the text is this. The forbidden woman or man is dangerous. The forbidden woman or man is dangerous. We're going to look at verses one through six together for just a moment. We see Solomon begins here by addressing his son. He says, be attentive to the wisdom that I'm giving you. Incline your ear to my understanding so that it might go well for you, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. And then he goes on to speak about, write about how the forbidden woman or forbidden man is incredibly attractive. This is what makes her dangerous. This is what makes him dangerous for us as God's people. The forbidden or strange woman, the forbidden or strange man would represent someone with whom you should not be engaging sexually. Would represent someone with whom you should not be engaging romantically. Solomon is communicating to his proverbial married sons here. And so that's the most direct application to the married people in the room. That's fair. But this text certainly applies to unmarried people as well. We read here in the text as Solomon speaks to his son of the forbidden woman that her lips drip honey. And how we could literally render this, her mouth is as smooth as oil. If we think about our our lives, and we think about sexual temptation in particular, as we think about circumstances that we encounter, where we are attracted to people of the opposite sex, to whom we are not married, we, these words are an apt description. They are at points almost irresistibly attractive to us as we engage with them. Honey dripping from the lips is an appropriate image a mouth that is smoother than oil. These words are true. But in the end, Solomon says, son, do not go there. Do not go there because in the end, the forbidden woman, again, the forbidden man, if you're a female, is bitter as wormwood in reality and sharp as a two-edged sword. In the end, it will be bitter for you. In the end, you will be cut to pieces. Any in the room who have fallen in these ways, who have fallen sexually, I trust would bear the same testament. Would say that, yes, on the front end, the attraction is strong. The excitement is real. The thrill is there. And in the end, bitterness. In the end, I was cut to pieces by this. We see that the path of adultery leads to death. The path of sexual sin goes nowhere good. We see that the forbidden woman, the forbidden man, she or he does not consider his or her ways. And his or her ways wonder, but they don't know it. Second point from the text, just as we consider it together briefly. 
Number two, if number one is the forbidden woman or forbidden man is dangerous, number two, and so stay away from her or him. And you can see this as easily as I can. It's very plain. Verse seven, again, listen to me, O sons. He's, direct, he's addressing them directly again. Do not depart from the words that I'm giving you to the women in the room. Listen to me, O daughters, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep away from the forbidden woman or the forbidden man and do not go near their door. That's verse eight. We're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks because Proverbs seven is this same thing again, very similar text. The counsel of Scripture when it comes to withstanding sexual temptation is not to go near it. That, I mean, full stop. It's like, you, do you want to stand in terms of sexual purity, then flee. Because if you go near it, you will fall. We'll think more about that pointedly in a couple of weeks, and we'll consider it more later on in our time together today. So stay away, verse 8, from the door of the forbidden woman, or again, insert forbidden man. If you go there, verse 9, you will give everything away. You think it's worth it, but it's not. You think it's worth it, but you will give everything. You will lose it all. Your honor, your years, your strength, your labors. This thing that you think you can't live without will end up taking everything you have from you. If you go there, verses 11 through 14, at the end of your life, you will groan. It will have not been worth it. You will groan and lament what you did. When your flesh and your body are consumed, you will lament and regret that you hated discipline and correction. You will lament and regret that you didn't listen to your teachers and your instructors who were telling you don't go there. And you will be ruined before others. Verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In the context, the assembled congregation of Israel. So write this down figuratively or literally. I don't care. This is true of sin and temptation. The following is true of sin and temptation. We tend to only see what we think that we will get. And we are not mindful of what we will lose. When it comes to sin and temptation, we only tend to see what we think we will get from it. How my cravings will be satisfied. And we do not see and we are not appropriately mindful of what we will lose. This is one of the great works of the enemy in the ways that we face temptation. And this is how our flesh wages war against our spirit and our mind. We're blind to what we will lose and how we will be harmed. Point number three. Verses 15 to 19, Solomon pivots. He turns from these strong words about the forbidden woman, forbidden man. And now, number three, encourages his proverbial sons to enjoy your own spouse. Enjoy your own spouse. These are good words. In the midst of this, Flee from the forbidden woman or man. Don't go near him or her. It will ruin you. Instead, son, here's what's good. Enjoy your wife. Here's what's good, daughter. Enjoy your husband. Verses 15 to 17 is 
full of figurative metaphoric language depicting a monogamous covenant relationship. Look at it with me. Drink water from your own cistern, right? Flowing water from your own well. So this is yours. It's not just everybody's. Like this is your cistern. This is your well. Stay in your lane, right? Sexually. Verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should you be promiscuous? Rhetorically, no, you should not. Should you sleep around? No, you should not. Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. It's clear that he's pointing to a monogamous, one man, one woman covenant relationship. Don't go outside the bounds of it. Then in verses 18 and 19 is when he explicitly says, rejoice in the wife or the husband of your youth, right? He says, these are great words. He describes his son's wife as a, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. She is beautiful. Let her breast, let her body fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Ladies in the room, let his body fill you at all times with delight and let you always be intoxicated in his love. This sounds very similar to things that are written in the Song of Solomon, right? In terms of how we relate to one another in a marriage relationship. So flee from temptation. Don't go near the forbidden man or woman. Instead, delight in your spouse. These verses are good for us. And at the same time, we should all acknowledge the reality of life in this fallen world. For those who are married in the room, we know that marriage is full of challenges. Marriage is often hard. That's because a marriage is comprised of two sinners. One sinner marries another sinner. There will always be problems in your marriage because you're in it. There will always be problems in my marriage because I'm in it. Right? We bring that with us. And then you throw on top of that the stresses and the strains of life. You throw on top of that things like sickness and weariness and financial strain and difficulty with children, difficulty having children, children with disability. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Those challenges are real. And so what does this mean for us? It means that if we're going to listen to and heed the wisdom that Solomon is giving to us, we will be mindful of the challenges that face our marriages. We will be mindful of the ways that we can grow tired in our marriage relationships. And we will be intentional to pursue our husband or wife. We will be intentional to invest in our husband or wife. We will be intentional in making time for our wife or our husband. Like, so we know these things, right? We have to be intentional and thoughtful as we trust Christ as we live together in the life of the church, we have to help one another flee from temptation and then invest in what's good. Flee from sexual sin, invest in your marriage if you're married. Number four, from the text. In the end, it will not go well for the sexually immoral. In the end, it will not go well for the sexually immoral, verses 20 to 23. Verse 20 is a rhetorical question. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman 
and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Why should you do that? You shouldn't. There's no reason for you to do that. In comparison to your spouse, why would you go elsewhere? You should not do that. Verse 21, now we bring the Lord into it. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. He, being God, ponders and considers and sees everything. God's law is certainly in view in verse 21. And God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's omniscience, his complete and perfect knowledge is in view. God is not fooled. He sees through to the heart of man. Verse 22, the wicked, in the context this would be the sexually immoral, are ensnared in their iniquities and held fast in the cords of their sin. In verse 23, we see that they die for lack of discipline and are led astray because of their great folly. This is very similar to what Asaph writes in Psalm 73 about the end of the wicked. You remember that passage where Asaph looks around and he resents wicked people because he sees their lives going well. But then he realizes by God showing up and showing him the end of the wicked, he writes these words. Truly, you, God, set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Friends, it's easy for us sometimes to look around at people who seem to be having all kinds of fun and living it up and hooking up and whatever and thinking, well, their lives seem to be going pretty well and my life is hard. We have those Psalm 73 moments a lot. It is good for us that we be reminded over and over again from Scripture that the end of, end of sin excuse me, is bondage and the end of sin is death. It leads nowhere good. So what I would like to do now is unpack the text with four considerations for us. We're going to try to get into it, underneath it, think about it for our lives and why this matters for us, and think about ourselves honestly, what we are according to God's word and in light of God's law. We'll consider what Christ has done for us, and we pray that this will be helpful for us. Just a word, I remind you again that we will be considering much of this same subject matter again in two weeks in Proverbs 7. So there will be many things that I won't have time to say today that we'll be able to consider in two weeks' time, we trust, Lord willing. So consideration number one, if we're going to unpack the text together, is a question. What is God's standard for our sexuality? It's a question. What is God's standard for our sexuality? In Exodus 20 and verse 14, this is the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not commit adultery. Very clear. It's a violation of his holy law to commit sexual sin, to have sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, again, I come back to that passage all the time because it's the greatest sermon on the law that was ever given. I trust you realize that. The greatest sermon on the law in the history of the world is the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll talk about this whenever we get in Matthew sometime, but I'm just going to say it today because this is pretty cool. We were talking, I was talking with a couple of people this week about it. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount and how it is Jesus preaching the law, Moses received the law from God on a mountain. Moses passed on to the people what God told him on a mountain. Jesus shows up on the scene 
and is speaking on a mountain to God's people, but instead of having to relay God's law to them as, a, as just an intermediary, he is the Lord himself who gave the law, preaching the law on the mountainside. It's a remarkable sermon where he applies the law as it should be applied and understood to the human heart. So what does he say about our sexuality in that sermon recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7? In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, so again, his authority as the Lord, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You are familiar with that verse like I am. But it's worth considering anew. That externally speaking, the law requires that we not have sexual relations with somebody we're not married to, and then Christ turns up the temperature, lest any of us think that we stand upright. It's like, you might not have slept with anybody, but if you have lustful sexual desires for someone, you are guilty of breaking God's law. You have not kept it. Before this, he had said, Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he puts a bow on the whole section of this particular piece of the Sermon on the Mount with the words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what is God's standard for our sexuality? It is faithfulness. It is uprightness. It is purity with perfection. Without exception, that's the standard. That you would not only never have sexual relations with somebody you're not married to, but that you would never even desire somebody and lust after somebody who is not your spouse. That's God's standard. So a question that's often asked, even in thinking about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Is all sexual sin the same? Is all sexual sin the same? Because some people will take the words of Christ and say, well, see, he's comparing. He's saying if you've lusted after somebody, you've committed adultery. So is he equating lust and adultery as the same thing? Answer to that question is no. Not all sexual sin is the same. In that, lustful thoughts, fantasizing, like satisfying yourself, pornography, sexual acts with another human being, they are not all the same in that they each represent further steps of engagement. That is real. There are different consequences as well, if we think about that. As we engage more deeply with sin, there are different consequences and repercussions for each in terms of its effect on your life and in terms of its effect on the lives of other people. That is, to be very clear, that is just kind of reasoning underneath Scripture. Right? That's not chapter and verse. That is me as your pastor thinking about it with you as we aim to live life under God's Word. So it does matter that as desires and cravings come upon us, the fact that we would not act on them matters. Yes, the fact that we lust after someone is a violation of God's law, but that does not mean that we then just say, well, I've already broken God's law and I may as well run off into this, this, and this. Of course we would not live that way. It does matter, even as we've just acknowledged that not all sexual sin is the same, it does matter that we understand at the same time that we all stand condemned. 
when it comes to God's standard for our lives sexually. None of us have kept God's command to not commit adultery, and we have all broken it. Jesus makes that very clear in how he applies it to our hearts. And so, when it comes to sexual sin, there is zero room in the church for self-righteousness. None. There's zero room in the church for self-righteousness, period, and certainly not here. If anybody in the room is honest, you will know that that's true. How could I ever be self-righteous as I think about even the way that I live my life sexually because I am corrupt? Every one of us has been tragically corrupted by Adam, and we are really guilty in how we live and think and act. How dare we act as though we are more righteous than others when it comes to this? All of this means, brothers and sisters, that when people fall sexually and they acknowledge that it's wrong and they confess their sin and they repent of it, we forgive and restore them with joy. Sadly, this doesn't happen in the church like it should. This particular area of sexual failure is hard for the church to handle because it is. It's It is a unique kind of sin. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. When we sin this way, it is a unique thing. And at the same time, when brothers or sisters fall in this manner and confess their sin and own it and repent of it, we forgive and restore them with joy. And so what does this mean for CBC? What does this mean for the church in general? It means that You know, the principle of the the scarlet letter, many have read the book, right, the scarlet letter. It means that the scarlet letter and that kind of thinking reeks of self-righteousness and is contra-gospel. That's what it means. The idea that people would be walking around, figuratively speaking, in the church, labeled as this kind of sinner or that kind of sinner, oh, well, that's an adulterer over there reeks of self-righteousness and is anti-gospel. It ought never happen here. This is one of those areas where we all need to own the fact that we have failed miserably, regardless of how far we have gone in terms of engagement. Second consideration for us in thinking about the truth of Proverbs 5 and the words that Solomon speaks to his son Number two is that we are all weak when it comes to sexual temptation. We are all weak when it comes to sexual temptation. So if you think that you're strong when it comes to sexual temptation, friend, you are naive and you are deluded and it will not go well for you. Sex is, as far as temptation is concerned, sex is the undefeated champion of the world. No one gets into the ring with sex and wins. It doesn't happen. There is not one human being, save Jesus, who being put in the right set of circumstances would not fall sexually. I mean, I would, I would, I stand up here and say that with a straight face. There's not one human being, save Jesus, who being put in the right situation and the right set of circumstances would not fall sexually. Own this. It's not to our credit, it's to our shame, but own it, lest you fall. This is why, as I 
mentioned earlier and as Solomon is very clear and he will be again in Proverbs 6 and in Proverbs 7 this is why wisdom when it comes to not falling sexually means don't go near it as much as that's possible right I mean we we live life in the world we're not saying don't live in the world but don't go near it if you go near it it won't go well Number three, consideration from the text. It's good for us to think this way and talk this way as a church, which we're about to do. We all battle sexual temptation and fail to varying degrees. We all battle sexual temptation and we all fail to varying degrees. This is related to consideration one, but it's different. We are at the same time, as we always talk about, we are at the same time justified and yet still sinners. We are sinner saints And we come back to this again and again for a reason. We think about the words of the Apostle Paul and we thank God that they're in the Bible when he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. No truer words were ever written than those. It's the experience of every believer. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul, you're reading my mail, man. Like, that's my life. I have the desire to do what's good and not the ability to carry it out. He goes on. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Have you ever been there? We all have. We would not be praying prayers of confession if this weren't true. Because we still find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do. And we find ourselves neglecting and not doing the things that we want to do. Because as you have been born again and I have been born again and the Spirit of God has taken up residence within us and we have been united to Christ by faith, we're not like we once were. And so we're actually grieved by sin. We are aware of the war and the conflict that rages inside. Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, which, by the way, would be impossible if you weren't redeemed. Non-believers don't delight in the law of God in their inner being. But, he says, I see in my members, that is in my body, right, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Gosh, that's true. He writes, Paul does, in Galatians 5 and verse 17. This is right where, this is the section where he's about to talk about works of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. How does he open that up? He says this, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Perhaps for some, Maybe, maybe all of us, but perhaps for some of us, this reality of the internal war and the raging war that takes place between my flesh and my spirit is not more obvious in any other area than it is when it comes to my sexuality. That may be true for many in this room. That you feel this war and this battle and this conflict more intensely when it comes to your sexuality than maybe in any other way. I don't know that that's true for you, but I suspect it's true for many. 
Sometimes the thoughts and the cravings and the desires that we have sexually pop up out of nowhere. I don't know where that came from. It wasn't solicited by anything. It just is there. Sometimes the thoughts, the cravings, the desires, they're brought on by something. But a lot of times that something is very small. It doesn't take much. Because of our weakness and our corruption, it doesn't take a lot. Something we see, something we hear, a memory that pops in our head, and it's, it's intense. It's immediate. The experience of so many in the church, when lusts and cravings and sexual desires just pop up, is that they grab you and they put their hooks in you. And it's like they, they don't let go, right? And it's like it chases after you. In those moments, I mean, it's funny because we often will think this way and we'll even say this, just kind of exposes how we, we think about things. In those moments, what do, what do you do? What do you do? You say, well, I guess the only thing I can do is pray, right? And in reality, it's, About all you can do a lot of the time is pray because you are utterly desperate for God's grace and help in everything. And certainly when temptation comes upon us, we pray that God would be gracious, that he might remove the desire. We pray that he would be gracious. Give me grace that I might not fall into sin. Give me grace that I might live unto you. Keep my feet from stumbling. Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. But brothers and sisters, the battle is real. And we do nobody any service. I realize, as I stand up here, and even as I survey the faces in the room, I know this is uncomfortable. I know it's hard. I feel it too. And at the same time, we do nobody any service if we don't talk honestly about this stuff in the church. If we can't talk honestly here, where can we? It is, it's sad, and it has been damaging for many that we haven't been able to talk about these things in the church. Not everything needs to be said from the pulpit, but there are many things that need to be said amongst brothers and sisters. Honest conversations. Honest confession. The forgiveness of sin extended in Christ. And not just this kind of, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, so I don't want to say too much about this today. But not just this general thing, well, you know, I've struggled with lust or whatever. That's easy to say. But to really get in one another's lives enough and know one another enough and have a church culture that's safe enough that people can actually confess real sin and struggle. We've got to be able to do that if we're going to have any chance together to live and pursue holiness. Consideration number four. And this is kind of coming back to Christ, the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus has delivered us from even this, our sexual sin. And God's people said, amen, praise God that that's true. Jesus has delivered us from even our sexual sin. I know that for many in the room, I can remember my experiences as a young man being made to feel at points like, okay, you know, God God does forgive sin, but there's got to be some stuff that, yeah, he just doesn't forgive. There's got to be some stuff that's just so corrupt and so bad, like I've, I've exhausted his grace and mercy. There's no way that I can be absolved of that. The good news of the gospel is that 
Absolution and grace and mercy are limitless in Christ Jesus for those who are united to him by faith. That doesn't excuse sin. Doesn't mean run off into sin. It means you're safe. We're going to think about that together. When we honestly assess ourselves before God's law in the area of our sexuality, and when we are honest about the internal war that we fight in this area, what a relief the gospel is. We were praying together and talking together before the service as we were thinking about this service and this sermon and everything else, and we were acknowledging the reality, and one of our brothers in there prayed and acknowledged the reality that none of us are pure. None. But we look to the one who was perfectly pure for us, and thereby we are forgiven, we are pardoned, and we're counted righteous by trusting in him. Wretched men and women that we are, it's good. Like when Dink welcomed us to service today and he says, we're all wretches. I mean, even I was sitting there this morning and I'm, I'm listening to it and I have to process that. Like, that's true. We are saints and at the same time, we're wretches. We're sin-sick wretches who are saints only because we've trusted Christ. We're being transformed, but we're still fighting and battling mightily against the corruption that we inherited. Wretched men and women that we are. Who will deliver us from these bodies of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. While the internal war rages, while our flesh has cravings that sometimes get the better of us, there is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ by faith. Praise the Lord. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. We talk about that regularly, but what does that mean? It means when it comes to this particular issue of our sexuality, in every way that we have failed sexually, Jesus has succeeded. In every way that you and I have failed sexually, and it is shameful to consider how we have failed in this way. In every way we've failed, he has succeeded in our place for us. And for every way we have failed sexually, Jesus took that in himself, upon himself. He took it on his own body to the tree and died for it. We sang this morning about see him prostrate in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, right? He is laid out, agonizing to the point of death, sweat like drops of blood. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Yes, it will. The work of Christ is sufficient. It's not because your sin isn't great. It's great. It's because the mercy of Christ is greater than your sin. Even your sexual sin. Praise the Lord. It is scandalous mercy that wretched sinners like us could ever be considered righteous, could ever dwell with God. Sometimes it's good for us to consider some of the most hidden, deep, kind of buried within sins like these because it forces us to really wrestle with the nature of the gospel and the nature of the work of Christ. He did enough to atone for even this he did enough to satisfy God and God's justice for even this. 
And his righteousness is great enough to cover even these sins. And we know that when our Lord was put in the ground, having atoned for sin and satisfied the wrath and justice of God, and having fulfilled all righteousness in the place of God's people, he did not remain there. He got up from the grave. His sacrifice was vindicated by the Father. Son, it's enough. It's enough. And he, in getting up from the dead, not only conquered death for us, but secured our resurrection. And here's the hope. Like, we don't think big picture hope. We will be raised in Christ Jesus, not only imperishable. We won't ever die again. That's true. But we will be raised in Christ Jesus incorruptible. That means our corruption will be no more one day. It's a mind-blowing thought and a joyful thought. The battle at that point, brothers and sisters, against the flesh will be over. This war that you fight that wearies you and sometimes beats you practically to death will be over. We will no longer lament with Paul and all the people of God that we don't do the things we want to do and that we keep doing the things we don't want to do. We will no longer lament that because it will no longer be the case. We will always do what we want to do and we will never do the things we don't want to do. We will no longer cry out about our wretchedness because we won't be wretched anymore. There will come a day when that welcome to church, as appropriate as it is now, we're wretches, won't be true anymore. We will be righteous. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father because of Christ. There will come a day when we will no longer be able to sin. Praise the Lord. No longer be able to sin. Can you conceive of that reality? I can't. We trust God. There will come a day when we will enter into the forever rest and joy of our Heavenly Father. I'm mindful of the verse of come thou found of every blessing that goes this way. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. All because of Christ. He has secured that for us. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and acknowledge that we are wretched and sinful. That we are corrupt. And that our only hope resides in your Son and in your grace. Our only hope for transformation even in this life is dependent completely upon the work of your spirit in us and is dependent completely upon our union with your son by faith. Father, you are good and faithful to us. You use the ordinary things like the preaching of your word and the reading of your word and the praying of prayers and the singing of songs and this table that we're about to come to. You use these things to strengthen us to confirm us in the faith, to nourish us and sustain us. And we pray that you would do that today. We pray that as we come and 
acknowledge and confess our sins before you. And as we come together, acknowledging our sinfulness before you, that we would be blessed, that we would be reminded anew of the work of Christ and the grace of Christ and the mercy of Christ towards sinners like us when we come to the table. We pray that you would minister to us as we participate in the body and blood of Christ by faith. Nourish, strengthen, and sustain us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.